Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fall Classic Rewind, the stories behind the World Series. We just wrapped up the 1969 World Series with the Mets winning in five games over the Orioles. And now we move on, we jump ahead six years to 1975, an all-timer classic matchup between the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati Reds, and the Boston Red Sox. 1975, Great year of baseball leading up to a fantastic series. This is going to be a tremendous, tight ball games every single night, even the the uh, the games that uh, didn't necessarily end up close. But we're going to, just kind of as a preview, we're going to end up with five one-run, five games decided by one run, four games won in the final at bat of a team where the, you know, basically decided there um just incredible high level baseball between two fantastic teams um and you know i'm going to introduce you uh we got a lot to cover today i'm going to introduce you to the these two teams the reds and the red Sox. and i'm also kind of in in this first little uh bit here we're going to cover sort of and re in and quickly recap the 1975 season. Um, a lot has happened, you know, since the 69 season. Uh, the Orioles continued to be great. They won in 1970. They went back to a World Series in 71. And, you know, they had kind of been the premier team in the East. Uh, only one year were they not the division winners, actually. In 1973, the Tigers ended up taking the East. Uh, but the, the main thing that was standing in the Orioles' way were the Oakland A's in the in the west um you know the twins ended up winning the west again in 1970 but then so for the next five years the a's won the west they won the west in 70 in 71 and then they ended up winning the american league in 72 73 and 74. they also ended up winning the world series each of those years uh so that was uh and they ended up winning the west again in 1975, they were the main sort of impediment to the Boston Red Sox. But the uh, they, you know, and they also did it with multiple managers. Dick Williams was the A's manager for for quite a few years, but then they uh, they ended up going with Alvin Dark to to win their third championship. Obviously, a great team with Catfish Hunter, Raleigh Fingers, Reggie Jackson, Sal Bando, Gene Tennis. I mean, they were they were some bad dudes, man. Uh, Vita Blue. I mean, how could I forget him? Uh, what an incredible team. And, um, you know, they had a real stretch of dominance, real almost kind of stranglehold over the American League. But here came the Red Sox. Uh, you know, they had some decent years, but never, never uh, hadn't made the playoffs yet in the, in the 70s. Uh, but they really, you know, they came out the gate strong. They had an incredible offense led by two rookies, two rookies. Uh, it's going to be Jim Rice, of course. Uh, we know we now know him as a Hall of Famer. Uh, he was out there patrolling left field. Uh, you know, gave them reason to send Carl Yastrzemski to play first base, and patrolling center field was a guy named Freddie Lynn. Freddie Lynn, who also having a tremendous year, ended up winning MVP as a rookie. And Jim Rice finished third in MVP, finished second in Rookie of the Year voting. Um, incredible performances by them. 
Unfortunately for the Red Sox, they actually ended up losing Jim Rice. Uh, he got hit by a pitch in uh, in September facing the Tigers. Got hit on the wrist and you know ending up ended up missing missing the rest of the se- season, missing the postseason. Who knows? With Jim Rice, this series might have turned out to be much different. And obviously, it's a, as as I mentioned before, it's a very tight series. So you're adding in, uh, you know, MVP candidate, great rookie. Um, there, there's a lot more of, you know, I'm going to talk about the dynamic of the Red Sox season, but like that was sort of the main part. Uh, you had Dewey Evans out in right field, another great, tremendous player, uh, great defender, solid hitter was, you know, sort of coming into his own as a consistent solid hitter. He's actually the type of guy who, you know, in his thirties, he really blossomed into a great hitter, sort of borderline hall of fame career. Uh, as I mentioned, Carl Yastrzemski, the, of course, you know, the, the longest standing Red Sox at the time. He was the heir apparent to Ted Williams, was never able to, you know, fully encapsulate uh, Ted Williams' greatness. But, man, he came pretty darn close, had some outstanding seasons. Of course, the 67 season. Um, and I'm going to bring up the 67 season shortly. I mean, the only two guys... Uh, remaining from that World Series, you know, from that World Series appearance team, um, who we're going to see in these playoffs are Yastrzemski and Rico Petroselli, who moved from shortstop to third base. Um, but uh, actually, Tony Canigliaro started the year, uh, but unfortunately, you know, of course, Tony C had a very, uh, you know, very rough time, um, obviously getting hit during that 1967 season. Again, thinking. A, a young player like Jim Rice in this 1975 season who, you know, season was unfortunately cut short by a hit pitch. Who knows how that series plays out. And, um, you know, so that's just th- things to think about. Tony C, unfortunately, was, you know, he was struggling very much at the point of this career. And, you know, that that opened up the opportunity, him, his struggles opened up the opportunity for Jim Rice to come in and do great. Uh, you had Cecil Cooper, who was going to be the first baseman, but got slotted into DH when they moved Yaz to first. Um, they ended up trading for Denny Doyle. They had real lackluster production at second base, um, but then you know ended up trading for the Angels' Denny Doyle. He came in, hit over 300 in about 90 games for them. Great production, great defense at second base. Uh, Rick Burleson, who's kind of like the Mets, Bud Harrelson, uh, was a great great defender. Um, got timely hits. Not not a, not a great hitter by any means. Um, in fact, for his career, was was very much below average. Um, but was a was a trusted guy. Of course, behind the plate, had uh, had Pudge, the original Pudge, Carlton Fisk, who's going to come up huge in this series. Um, weren't a great pitching staff, but they were led by a guy who ends up being the star star of today's game, and we're going to get into into his story in a bit, and that's going to be Louis Tiant. Uh, they also had Bill Lee, uh, Reggie Cleveland, um, and then out of the bullpen, you had guys like Dick Drago, Roger Murray, uh, and a couple of others who uh, who had who had solid seasons, but really it was that offense that was outstanding. Uh, and they also had a pretty darn good defense to boot. I mean, that their main thing, especially playing in Fenway Park, was we're going to outscore you. Um, 
and you know they ended up they ended up winning 98 games, finishing ahead of the Orioles, but you know who made a charge at the end of the season, but the uh, the Red Sox were able to withstand them, and uh, you know yeah they they ended up sweeping the A's pretty pretty convincingly and were onto the World Series, but they were facing an absolute juggernaut, and that absolute juggernaut was the Cincinnati Reds, who I'm going to get into after a word from our sponsor. You have many choices in aspirin, but not all aspirin is the same. Standard aspirin just contains aspirin. Other aspirins include small traces of nutrients like riboflavin, but only bufferin gives you more than just aspirin. A lot more. You see, bufferin starts with aspirin and riboflavin, but then we add 33% more bufferin, a coating that helps soothe and protect your stomach for the sometimes harsh effects of regular aspirin. But we don't stop there. Bufferin contains several extra layers of ingredients, like 13% caffeine for alertness, 42% calcium for strong bones, 27% grape nuts, and 54% tang, like former astronauts drank in the now mothballed space program. That's a lot of ingredients to pack into one buffered aspirin. Oh, and there's aspirin there for your regular old aches and pains. Bufferin, painkiller, vitamins, stomach soother, a jolt of energy, healthy, strong bones, and a hearty breakfast, all in one pill. Percentage of ingredients rounded. The Big Red Machine, offensive powerhouse class of the National League, ended up winning the wet, had won the West basically every year except for 1974 um the uh the Dodgers ended up winning the west you know despite the Reds winning 98 games um but the Reds had not been able to get a world series win yet ended up losing in 1970 uh to the Orioles in 5 games ended up getting knocked out in 71 uh by the Pittsburgh Pirates ended up losing the 72 series the 72 World Series to the A's game that uh, series that went seven games, and that's one of the most impressive things about the A's. They ended up having three seven-game series, which they won. Um, you know, that you know, impressive, impressive three-peat for them. But they would not get a chance to win four in a row, a, a, a feat that only the New York Yankees have ever accomplished. But yeah, the Reds. I mean, obviously led by Johnny Bench and Pete Rose. And Tony Perez, and in 1972, they added the real catalyst to that offense in Joe Morgan. One of the most lopsided trades that you know I'll get into a little bit, but trading Lee May and to- and Tommy Helms to the Houston Astros for Joe Morgan, Caesar Geronimo, who ended up winning Gold Gloves nearly every year, patrolling center field, and Jack Billingham, a guy who was a you know innings eater. Uh, and really benefited from that from that uh, from that high flying offense. In fact, won 19 games in a year. Was a real 
you know, established established himself as a as a consistent uh, pitcher in the National League. Um, Lee May had a great year for the Astros in in '72, but uh, ooh, man, that's that's one looking back of ooh, what were what were you doing there, Houston? What were you doing there? But the Reds, you know, Joe Morgan. I mean, think about this: you had Joe Morgan and Johnny Bench, the two best players at their position in the modern era. Johnny Bench, very clearly, he's the best catcher ever. Joe Morgan has an argument, and certainly in the modern era, was the best second baseman. Just uh, just absolutely incredible. And, and man, <laughs> Joe Morgan put it together this year. I mean, really, he really took off. Uh, was a very good player with the Astros, ended up making an all-star game, but he took off in this season, ended up winning MVP. Had a just just an incredible, incredible year. Um, ended up hitting 327. Had a 466 on base percentage. He walked 132 times. And with Johnny Bench and Tony Perez and, and George Foster hitting behind him, yeah, he was going to score runs. Ended up scoring 107 runs. Stole 67 bases. Drove in 94 runs from the two spot. I mean, just come on. What a year. And Johnny Bench was no slouch either. Hitting uh, 283, 28 home runs, 110 RBIs. Tony Perez drove in 109 runs. Pete Rose uh, ended up you know, playing all 162 games. Another 200 hit season. Another 300 batting average season. Just, I mean, they were an incredible team. Um, their starting pitching was solid. I mean, so, I mean, obviously, you know, the league average in the National League, uh, well, the, you know, Teams scored about four runs a game. The Reds scored over five runs a game for the entire year. I mean, just incredible. They they actually got off to a bit of a sluggish start. Um, part of that was their pitching was not great, but uh, Sparky Anderson, their incredible manager, ended up you know really figured out how to how to manage their bullpen with uh, rookie Raleigh Eastwick, who who came in and was outstanding. Will McIanney was a lefty kind of the other guy who ended up clo- uh, pitching the end of games for them. They had Pedro B- Bourbon and Clay Carroll, who uh, really, I mean, they had four guys with ERAs in the twos who pitched really high leverage innings. Um, and then with that offense, all they had to do was get ahead and then they'd stay ahead. And that's why you saw guys like um, Don Gullett going 15 and four and, uh, and Jack Billingham picking up a lot of wins. Um, you know, guys who weren't necessarily outstanding pitchers really pitching well. Um, and, you know, they ended up having by far the best offense in the National League, and they ended up actually have by, by in terms of ERA, having a top three pitching staff. That's going to lead you to win 108 games and win the East by 20 games. I mean, they, again, as I mentioned, they got off to a rough start, sort of, you know, by their standards, were – fighting around 500 for for the first two months of the season, and then they just took off in June and July and never looked back. And, I mean, when you've got on that team, think about this. Uh, George Foster started coming into his own that season, uh, and eventually in 1977 he would end up winning an MVP when he hit 52 home runs. But on that team you had Pete Rose – one of the best hitters of the time, one of the best all-time hitters who won an MVP. 
you had Joe Morgan, who won an MV, you know, won back-to-back MVPs in 75 and 76. Johnny Bench, who had won multiple MVPs, a rookie of the year, outstanding player, Hall of Famer, best catcher ever. Then Tony Perez, who's a Hall of Famer as well. And add in Dave uh, Dave Concepcion, one of the best defensive shortstops ever. That really the glue that held every uh, one of the, the those glue guys. Ken Griffey Sr., whose son would win an MVP. And Cesar Geronimo patrolling center field, catching everything and throwing out any any runners who uh, wanted to try to take an extra base. I mean, just what a team! I mean, they were they were a tough matchup. So I think coming into this series, many teams were pro- many people were. You know, they like the Red Sox, but it's like who who's going to beat the Reds? Who's gonna who's gonna hold down the big red machine? Um, but one of the significant factors in this uh, of where why this series might play out as as you uh, a little bit unexpected is the Reds were excellent at home. They were sixty four and seventeen. Let me say that again: sixty four and seventeen at home. They were they were all right on the road, you know, forty four and thirty seven. Not not bad by any by any uh, stretch of the imagination. I mean, it's tougher to win on the road, but man, the Reds they loved playing at Riverfront. And despite winning one hundred and eight games back then, they just alternated who hosted the World Series, whether it was American League or National League. They they alternated it every year, so despite being the better team and having a clear home advantage, the Red Sox were going to host games one, two, six, and seven. And, you know, again, home field advantage sometimes has a significant factor in baseball. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, the, there's weird wonky things that happen, but I, I just thought that's, you know, that and that's going to be important to, to consider of, Man, the Reds, the Reds were just, they, I mean, they just killed teams at Riverfront. But they were not going to have home field advantage in this series. Um, I'm going to quickly play for you. Again, we've got, uh, we've got Kurt Gowdy returning. This was actually going to be his final World Series that he covered. Uh, Kurt Ga- we were going to have Kurt Gowdy on the call. Uh, throughout the series, actually, Kurt Gowdy and Joe Garagiola traded off between TV and radio. Um, I, I'm, again, digging in clips, I'm going to try to f- see if I can find some of the radio clips from this series as well. Uh, I've got all of the TV clips. So the in terms of main play-by-play, we're going to have a switch off each game between Gowdy and Garagiola. Garagiola would end up taking over, mainly doing the World Series for NBC in the years to come. We've got Tony Kubak again uh, doing color commentary. Uh, and then for this game, we've got Dick Stockton of the Red Sox. For the Reds games, we're going to have Marty Brenneman. Uh, so I'm going to play a little sort of pregame introduction. And then after that, I'm going to get into the story of Louis Tiant. And uh, then we'll get into the ball game. All right. Here are the Red Sox. They'll get a mighty roll. Jastrzemski to left field, Lynn is in center, Evans in right, very well might be the best defensive outfield in baseball. 
get some argument from the Red fans, the other clubs, but they can all throw and cover ground, and they're very accurate throwers. Even the Cincinnati Scott reports rate them the best that they played against, potentially. In the infield, Petroselli's at third. At short is Burleson. At second is Doyle. At first is Cooper. And there he is. He says he's 35. People say going on 45. His father's here, 70 years old. His father was one of the greatest pitchers in the history of Cuba. He pitched also in the Negro American League. Did not want his son to uh, pitch in baseball. We'll tell you that story later, Tony. All right, Curtin Dick, let's go to the man who's going to catch him in today's ball game, and that, of course, is Carlton Pitts. He'll be calling the pitches. Let's hear what Carlton had to say about Luis Tian. Well, Tony, I think he'll go with his basic game, which is basically aggressive game. He has four good pitches that he can throw for strikes at any time with a multitude of variations on each pitch. Uh, I look for him to be aggressive today and try to get ahead of the hitters. I think Dick Stockton will tell you we'll know right away about Tion. If Louis Tion has his control, he'll be all right. And, of course, that's where you'll see the head feints and all the body fakes that uh, he likes to do. He's a, people call him an exotic type of a pitcher. If he doesn't have his control, he'll be in trouble. And, of course, he has to get his fastball in there. The umpires today, they're all working in their first World Series. Behind the plate will be Art France of the American League. Nick Calusi of the National League working at first. Larry Barnett of the American League is second. Dick Stello of the National League is third. He's a Boston, Massachusetts man, by the way. Down the left field line, covering will be George Baloney of the American League, and Satch Davidson of the National League is working the right field line. One of baseball's best players over a long stretch, Pete Rose, batting 317, a switch hitter. Great fan of the game. He knows every batting average of every player in the major league. So the pitching matchup that we've got for game one is between Louis Tiant and Don Gullett. Now, Louis Tiant had been sort of on a heater at Fenway, really, really dominant, had a great outstanding performance, had a shutout against the Oakland A's, had a real strong end to his season um, for what had been a really rough year for him. And, you know, El Tiante... Uh, Reggie uh, Reggie Jackson called him the Fred Astaire of uh, of baseball. Was a you know uh, a living legend who had a very up and down career. Born in Cuba, his father was a a, a Cuban pitcher. Uh, also had played in the Negro leagues. Was a little hesitant because he didn't necessarily see a future for a black man, especially a Cuban black man. Uh, in American baseball, but his his uh, you know his mother saw his love for the game, and uh, he ended up going to pitch in Mexico as sort of a, as a sixteen year old, and actually ended up sort of almost uh, getting stranded in Mexico. Uh, you know, would go back you know back and forth between Mexico and Cuba, um, but you know, obviously the like with Mike Cuellar, there were things happened with the revolution, and. Uh, you know, ended up his father recommended that he not come back, you know, obviously because the, the, the chance would be that he wouldn't get a, another chance to leave. Uh, so ended up getting picked up by, uh, by Cleveland or in the early 1960s. Um, again, sort of the story of El Tiante was up and down, had great success and then would have stretches of struggle, had trouble staying healthy, getting injured. Um, 
obviously he was a oh, he was a giant of a man. Um, what a what a guy, and uh, you know d- d- would uh, some of it was smoke and mirrors. He was sort of a uh, when you think about guys like Johnny Cueto or Jose Contreras coming at you at, with different arm angles and was sort of a shimmy and a big turnaround wind up. I mean, he was sort of one one of the, one of those guys along with uh, Juan Marichal who really used deception as part of his craft. Um, but you know, when he finally got a chance, I mean, he was pitching great in 1964. Was doing great at AAA. Finally got a chance, you know, call up to the big leagues. Um, and, uh, you know, first first game was, hey, you're in New York. You're pitching against Whitey Ford. And he goes out and throws a four-hit shutout, striking out 11 hitters. Um, and really, you know, was tremendous in his rookie season. Ended up going 10-4 and four with a 280 ERA. Then ended up struggling for a couple of years. Was kind of sort of a league average pitcher. A um, lot of wins, a lot of losses, a lot of innings again up and down um and kind of i think the the real example of this up and down was 1968 to 1969 i've seen 1968 the year of the pitcher he goes 21 and 9 with a white with a 190 ERA an incredible year uh um I, you know when uh you know obviously Denny McLean ended up winning the Cy Young cuz he won 30 games but he and catcher Bill Freehan remarked Man, if if he had a better offense behind him, he'd be right up with there. He might even be going for 40 games the way he's pitching. Um, Unfortunately, with the change in the ball and the change in the mound and offense really spiking the next year, Tiant had a rough year going 9-20, and losing 20 games in a season. Eh, That's kind of a rough look. Um, And then really had struggled over the next few years with injuries, caught on with the twins and, and, and struggled mightily had to, had to go back down to the minors. I mean, think about this. This is a guy who had won 20 games at the major league level, had a year where he had a sub two ERA and here he is fighting for his life in the minor leagues. And in fact, you know, caught it, caught on with the Braves, but they weren't willing to call him up to the big leagues. And so he ended up, uh, Signing on with the Red Sox AAA, they gave him a chance, and he caught back on. And again, early success, and then a couple of years of struggling. But he was a—he ended up kind of being a beloved figure uh, of the Red Sox. Was was beloved by his teammates because he was this—I um, mean, just this great character. Just came in fun loving, and uh, you know, he, everyone knew him as a workhorse. I mean, he came in. And he was going to give it his all. Um, just what a what a guy, Louis Tiant, and you know had some real successes. In fact, had a year where his ERA was one sixty with the Red Sox. Um, but this nineteen seventy five season, he got off to a real rough start. Was really really struggling. His ERA was up around four, and there was with his manager Daryl Johnson. Sort of towards the end of the year, there was. Strong consideration that you know he might not make the postseason roster. He might be he might be on the outs. Um, and just a really interesting story here was obviously with the travel ban. It had been years, years since he had seen his family, since he had seen his parents. And with a letter from two U.S. senators 
George McGovern at, who actually went on a of South Dakota, went on a went on a visit in with the the Massachusetts Center, which I think was Earl Monroe, um, or I, I forget I forget I forget who his what his name was, um, but you know they got a chance to basically Edward Brooke, sorry Edward Brooke the third, um, got a chance to you know petition to allow his parents to come see him uh and you know didn't immediately um you know so it was able to happen and it was great i mean it was i think even uh uh Tion said he could die happy there you know getting a chance to have his parents come see him pitch at fenway park but he ended up you know towards the end of the season just absolutely dominating and was the guy that uh that daryl johnson and the red sox trusted you know to give the ball in game one uh and part of that was respect for his career but also respect for what he was doing and the hot hand he had towards the end of the season um and yeah i mean here he was the ace of the red sox getting a chance to go up you know game one and he really, really loved pitching in Fenway. When it came to big moments, we were going to hear multiple ta- times today the crowd chanting "Louis, Louis, Louis." Uh, it's really, it's uh, what an atmosphere, and and that's you know something the Red Sox, you know that ballpark. It's one of, and I'm going to talk about it multiple times. It's one of the most unique ballparks. It's one of the things I love about baseball is not every field's the same, not every place is the same. I mean. You have that fan atmosphere, but also just the park itself. You've got the green monster in left. You got this. You got pesky pole down in in right field. And in fact, Johnny Pesky was actually uh, sort of the. Uh, he was one of the uh, one of the coaches for the Red Sox at the time. And but you also have a really. It's a real deep right field. It's kind of where fly balls go to die. Uh, you know, most of the time you think of it as a hitter's ballpark, but there are a couple of instances where. You know, it doesn't necessarily play to to an advantage. But uh, we're going to get into the game now. Uh, we're, so, again, as I said, matchup between Don Gullett and Louis Tiant. Louis Tiant was able to get uh, Pete Rose out. And now here he is facing the MVP of the league, Joe Morgan. We, we may have in this series, and it's usually fitting that we do, the two most valuable players in their respective leagues. This is a heavy favorite to win the National League, Joe Morgan, and Fred Lynn is a favorite to become the most valuable player in the American League. A remarkable story because he's a rookie. Morgan's been around. Now, Morgan has everything, and maybe like Sugar Ray, inch for inch and pound for pound, he may be the strongest batter in baseball. Look at those credentials. And he can hit a line drive into the right field grandstand here very easily. He's a pull hitter, and he'll pull the ball sharply into the corner. And the corner here is not too far away. He has a line shot to go. Well, they've done what they did against the A's. They've kept the rabbits off the baseline so far. Absolutely, and of course, Morgan, like so many of the other Reds, are uh, dead fastball hitters, and Louie gave him a breaking ball right there, and so we can expect to see a lot of that this afternoon. So it was a great first inning for Louie Tiant there. Sets down the side in order. Um, you know, of course, Joe Morgan, great hitter, hard to keep off base, but you especially want to keep him off base. As I mentioned, he had 67 stolen bases that year. 
really wrecks havoc on a couple other guys in the in the Reds lineup, whether it be Ken Griffey, Concepcion, or Geronimo, really uh, uh, really would uh, wreck havoc on the bases and you know and facing these great Reds hitters. You know, you want to be focused on trying to get Johnny Bench and Tony Perez out. If you're worried about guys stealing bases, it just makes the job harder. We're going to see that come to play in a few innings uh, with a with a significant factor. But uh, on the other hand, you know, for, you know, easy, great first inning for Tiana, as I mentioned, you know, he's coming at you with all these different angles, also coming at you with six different pitches, really keeps hitters off balance. I mean, that was his game. That's what he was excellent at doing. <clears throat> but uh, things for Don Gullett did not go as smoothly in the first inning. Um, you know, ends up giving up a couple of base hits. Uh, you know, Dewey Evans ends up getting a ball through the left side. Uh, gets bunted over by Denny Doyle. Carl Yashkremski ends up walking. Um, is able to get fists to pop out, but upsteps Freddie Lynn. MV, rookie MVP, had one of the best years that you're ever going to see. However, it is a lefty-lefty matchup. Don Gullett's a lefty. Um, so we all, we're going to see how this plays out, facing trouble in the first inning. And here's Freddie Lynn. Listen to the ovation for him. You know, Don Zimmer's been around baseball 29 years. He's an old National Leaguer. And he said, I was with the great Dodger teams. I never saw anybody have a year like this kid from the opening day of the season to the last. He never hit below 330. He never hit above 350. Led the league in doubles. Just about everything. There's a bounding ball. This will be a tough play. And Here comes Evans. And Evans is out at home play. Morgan is uh, claiming that he was obstructed with, interfered with trying to feel that ball. He was interfered with, but he's not going to argue. That's he runs out there, too. That's the end of the first inning. No score. Here's a play that was argued on a little bit. Yastrzemski and the rule reads that he was supposed to give Morgan a path. It was interference. It was not called. But watch this play by Concepcion getting the runner. Zimmer sending him on. Dwight Evans, Concepcion with a fine play. Now, the Red Sox were a very aggressive team. They loved to press the issue in terms of trying to take the extra base. That's especially relevant today. Uh, I'm not sure if it was mentioned in, in one of those clips, but it's a cold, rainy day at Fenway Park. The, the grass is slick, and also, you know, the ball's not carrying. The Red Sox, who and the Reds to that degree, were power-hitting teams Ball wasn't carrying today, so fly balls were going to die. Um, so any chance that you'd get to to take advantage, get you know get an extra run, they were looking to take that opportunity. Unfortunately, not a great read there by Dewey Evans, you know, because the ball didn't really trickle away far enough. Concepcion is able to able to jump on it, fire it home, and it's a close play at the plate. We didn't have review back then. Um, but the Reds, you know, you know, well, to be fair, this should have been called, the Yastrzemski should have been called out. It was absolutely interference, but the Reds, they're able to keep their heads on. I mean, that's what they did. That's what they do. They don't really make mistakes. Um, and they're able to fire it in, get Evans out at the plate. 
Um, you know, it, what happens over the, these next few innings is Teon's dominant. Get some great defensive plays. We're going to have one here by by Denny Doyle with uh, in the third inning with um, with Ken Griffey at the plate. Um, but really, you know, early on, things were not not necessarily clean for Don Gullett, but he was able to get through innings. He was able to get through outs, and we're gonna we're gonna sort of play uh, play through some of those some of those opportunities there. But here we are in the third inning with the speedster, Ken Griffey, up at the plate. Al Teante will face the talented young Ken Griffey, who beat out 38 infield hits during the year. He's been clocked in 3.5 going to first base. He's developed into quite a ball player. Was born in Stan Musial's hometown of Denora, Pennsylvania. And the infield is in on him. You have to play in and unload that ball quickly. Strike. El Teante has not allowed an earned run in his last 27 innings here at Fenway Park. And that's pitching, my friend, in this little ballpark. Griffey, Geronimo, and Gullet. Change up. Doyle grabs it, throws to first, and got him. Good play. Red Sox season change when Denny Doyle joined him in Kansas City in mid-June. The big acquisition. He has been a spark, and it's interesting that on a change of speed pitch, normally a second baseman would be breaking toward first base because he would pull the ball more. But Doyle got an excellent jump. Going to his right, he scraps every minute, as does his partner at around second base, Rick Burleson. You know, Tony, he's a winning player that never had a chance to play in a winning team. Finally got his shot. Nice grab there by Denny Doyle, quickly quickly releasing it, going to his left. And, you know, that's what he's been doing since the Red Sox picked him up. They really were getting nothing out of second base. Doug Griffin was playing there early to start the year, but picked up Denny Doyle for practically nothing. Uh, a player to be named later and some money. Uh, and he's been he's been great for them. A real, real spark plug. Uh, and as you heard Kurt Gowdy mention, I mean, El Teante's been on a heater. I mean, he's been absolutely dominant. It's perfect through three innings. Uh, Red Sox barking at the door, but just haven't been able to haven't been able to come through yet. And so, you know, the Reds were looking to put on pressure. Obviously, hadn't done anything through the through the first three innings, but Joe Morgan gets a base hit to right, and then the game is on. Take a listen to what happens here. Right now, he's taking what they call the base dealers, the one-way lead. A little bit longer than normal. He's leaning a little bit back toward first base. He wants to draw a throw. Whoa! Fenway oh, no. Park fans, they had him. In Cincinnati, they wouldn't be saying a word. Oh, Joe might have been gone. Let's look at it again. Watch this. Watch Morgan just lean toward second base. He got the feet crossed up, which doesn't happen often with Joel. What do you think, Tony? I'll tell you, he had the hand in, and Cooper's been able to tag that hand instead of up on the elbow. I think I think he had his hand back. Tell you what, if the throw had been more toward the first base side, he would definitely would have been out. Cooper had to move his hand over to make that tag. It's a pretty good duel right here. This is a real duel going on, a real gunfighter duel now here. Teant and Morgan. We forgot all about Ben. She's the batter. Bach, Bach, Bach. Morgan yelled immediately when he threw. 
I hear Daryl Johnson coming out to argue with the National League umpire who called the box. Now, one of the ways they will call a ball count Tiot is if he throws to first base and then step. The rule says you must step toward first base and then throw. And this Tiot has controversy, Tony, before the series. The Reds claimed he balked. And I got a National League umpire who called it at first. I'll say this, Kurt and Dick. The National League umpires during the course of the year have called this ball on National League pitchers all year long. Watch Tion. Does he throw and then step? That is the key. There is the ball. And it's splitting some pretty fine hairs. And it's difficult to see. We'll see Tion all by himself. Watch his leg. Watch his left foot. Does he step first and then throw? Or does he throw and then step? That's the key for you fans. I'll tell you, that looked like a legitimate move to me. Did me too. He's got one that's worse than that when he does bump, but that was a legitimate move, I think. Boy, he's mad. He's glaring at Nick Colosi over at first base. Well, the National League umpire sort of on the spot here with Tiot. Really, they were put on the spot before the series started. Here's the way this guy's pitched all his career, and you can't expect him to change. On the other hand, the umpires are used to one thing. Well, Morgan's up second on a box, one out. Yeah, I I agree with Tony Kubek here. I don't think Tiant Bach there. Now, on the closer play where it looks where uh where Morgan really kind of he jabs towards second, really kind of gets fooled by Tiant. Uh, that might have that one might have actually been a balk. Um but anyway, you know, there that you know that's adding pressure. And of course you've got Johnny Bench at the plate. Joe Morgan's now on second. Uh, it's a real, real actually a long f- fight of an at bat here uh, between Bench and Tiant. But Tiant ends up winning, gets gets Bench to pop out to the catcher. But now you got Tony Perez, slugger, you know, Cuban versus Cuban matchup, uh, mano in mano. Uh, and take a listen to what happens here. Bench is able. Uh, uh, Perez falls behind in the at-bat, looking to fight. But Tion was looking to get his team back in the dugout. Tony used to be a third baseman. They moved him to first. They say they're going to move Bench to first or left field later on to prolong his career. They have a good young catcher named Werner. Louie, Louie. Fans start chanting. One ball, two strikes. One left. At the end of three and a half, no score. Louie, Louie, Louie. Man, they uh, great energy from the ballpark. Probably helped buy uh, Tion to call there, and certainly Fisk behind the behind the plate. Good, good framer. Was a little off the outside corner, but uh, man. Uh, what a great pitch there to get out of a jam uh, from Louis Tiant. And then uh, in the bottom of the fourth, the, uh, the Red Sox were looking, uh, looking to do damage again. Rick Burleson's able to get on and with Cecil Cooper at the plate. And, and I'll mention this. It's an interesting thing that Cooper was hitting down in the order, was hitting eighth. Uh, part of that was because he was a lefty and Gullet was a lefty. But you've got Tiant on deck, and so – Interesting call here by Burleson, and maybe not 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 too crazy of a thing, but uh, 
he's looking to advance, you know, to try to get into scoring position, you know, with, with the pitcher coming up. I think if he gets the bag, Cecil Cooper might get intentionally walked because they wouldn't necessarily want to take their chances with the batter, but looks like a favorable matchup for Gullet. But, uh, you know, he's trying to run on Johnny Bench. That might not be such a good idea. They're playing him to the opposite field. They have a book on each team. There goes the runner. Bench's throw right on the button. Don't run on him. Burleson's an easy odd. Johnny Bench to Concepcion. No runs, one hit, nobody left at the end of four. It's nothing, nothing. Preceding announcement was furnished in the public service by Major League Baseball. Watch out calmly. Johnny Bench gets rid of the ball at second base, knowing he has Burleson all the way. Gullet does not have a good move to first base, but he's very quick going home, and he's tough to steal on. And the Red Sox keep running. They're trying to pressure the defense, which is so good of the Cincinnati Reds. Johnny Bench is a one-handed catcher. Rod Hundley started it in modern times. That is, he catches the ball one-handed with a mitt so he won't damage his throwing hand. And he gets that ball out of that mitt very quickly. Johnny Bench wasn't just the greatest catcher of all time because he was the greatest hitting catcher. Well, it's because he did it on the other side of the field, too. Uh, great blocker, and you just didn't run on him. Had a cannon. Uh, Burleson absolutely hosed at second base. Didn't have a chance. Um, so now we're going to jump ahead to the bottom of the sixth inning. There were some some more base runners gone on, but no real big plays, no real tension. Uh, there was a Joe Morgan double in the top of the sixth uh, to uh, get him in scoring position again, but... Tiant knuckled down again, uh, absolutely dominant. Got got Perez striking out, got him looking absolutely foolish on a on a on a sweeping slider. Um, but the Reds again going to get into trouble in the bottom of the sixth. So here we're going to see with one out, Freddie Lynn getting a base hit to center, then Rico. Doubles down to right field, setting up second and third um, with one out. And with Burleson up at the plate, they elect to intentionally walk him, interesting, to face Cooper to get that lefty-lefty matchup. And take a listen to what happens here. With the bases loaded, again, so now it's bases loaded, one out. I just want to say, you've got Cooper at the plate, got the pitcher on deck, and Tion. So one out, nothing, nothing ball game. So take a listen to what happens. They got pennant fever early here. And there's a fly ball to center field. Getting a late start is Geronimo. He makes the catch. And here comes Lynn. Here comes the throw, and Lynn is out at home. Well, he challenged one of the great throwing arms in baseball, Cesar Geronimo. Here's Geronimo for our center field camera. He has a great throwing arm, but figuring with Tiant coming next, the pitcher, Zimmer, sends him. They played this aggressively all year long. Ball hit the side of the mound, unfortunately bounced back to Bench. Johnny Bench makes a good play, because this is like a shortstop playing uh, two hopper. He might have the best throwing arm in baseball. He did not get much on that ball, though, oddly enough. A two hopper. Right. So two Red Sox players have been thrown out at the plate, and we go to the seventh of a scoreless game. 
The Reds are able to throw out yet another runner, the third of the game. Uh, again, dicey play there by Lynn, but it makes sense with Tiant coming up. You're assuming, nah, he's probably not going to come through with a base hit. Gullet's probably going to win that matchup. And uh, aggressive play, but whew, just a laser of a throw from Geronimo. It actually, I mean, skips off the mound. It, you know, it's just sometimes the breaks don't go your way. Um, or sometimes they do go your way. You can imagine that jumping off, scooting off somewhere else, but on the money throw, bench with a great play at the plate. I mean, that's just that's just that's just who the Reds are, making those great plays. And if we're thinking the context of this game of now it's scoreless through six innings, Tion's been absolutely masterful, looking looking like you just need to get him one run and Red Sox have had multiple opportunities to do that, but have had runners thrown out uh, multiple times, but they kind of feel in control of this game. But in the top of the seventh here, going to look a little different. You know, George Foster is able to get a single through the left side, and now you have Dave Concepcion coming up, and he's going to hit a fly ball into left field. But take a listen to what happens. And Concepcion hitting away, fouls off the first pitch. You get that ball high out over the plate, Concepcion can drill it in the deep right center. He can also pull the ball. He can be dangerous. Some consider him the best fastball hitter on this Cincinnati club. You just can't get it by him. Louis Tiant, who shut out the Cleveland Indians to just about wrap up the division title in September. He makes his definite stop. And Concepcion loops one to left field. Yastrzemski coming on and makes it back. Oh, Yastrzemski, 36 years old, coming on and covering left field. As he says, he plays it in his sleep. Here's Kyle. We mentioned earlier he has the ability to play a very shallow left field in this park, unlike Foster, who play deep to play the long. Kurt? Here's another angle. He used to be a shortstop in the minor league. He can really charge a ball. Great body control. Year after year, he used to lead the American League in assists. He does it all out there. They said Al Simmons was the best before him playing left field. This one ranks right along with Simmons. I don't think there's anyone in the history of the game who knew how to play left field at Fenway Park better than Kyle Yastrzemski. I apologize if that if my Boston accent offends anybody there, but... Man, he knew how with the years of playing that. You know, and think about this. Vast majority of the year, in fact, only a hundred you know, for 140 games, Yas was playing first base because it was Jim Rice out there and left. But he knew his old stomping grounds better than anyone. He they felt comfortable even with his older legs at age 36 now. Age 36, Carl Yastremski. His uh, I think it was his 15th year already in the big leagues. I mean, think about that. And he comes in, he knows, hey, I can play shallow. Some guys, you know, would elect to play almost up against the wall at Fenway, and Yaz was having none of that. Comes in aggressively, making a tremendous play. Man, what a what a play for Yaz. And, and then we're going to see here, all right, we've got actually uh, another runner gets on um, there. Um, well, in you know, a little actually turn of favor. 
um, George Foster ends up getting caught stealing at second. Uh, and then Ken Griffey doubles to right field, down the right field line, probably would have scored a run. So that's a huge play there. Um, but then they intentionally walk Cesar Geronimo. You got runners at first and second. Don Gullett's on the mound, and Tiant is looking a little, looking a little rattled. Uh, and Gullett, you know, was actually a pretty good hitting pitcher. Um, but the defense is once again going to come through for Louis Tiant. Tiant has to be very careful now, and his manager knows it, not to come in there with a fat pitch against Gullett. Gullett can hit for a pitcher. He eases up on him, he can get in trouble. Two strikes. And there is a ball that's caught by Tough play for Doyle. He had to go to his left, and he saved a run with that catch. And Gullet is out. A great tumbling catch earlier in the inning by Yastrzemski may have saved a run, or a big inning, and now Denny Doyle, the fiery second baseman who sparked this club earlier in the year, makes a fine play on the slicing ball hit to his right. Great play again by Denny Doyle. Kind of a not, a, not a hard hit ball, kind of what we might call like sort of a duck snort. Um, but uh, Doyle is almost shaded a little up the middle. Has to get on his horse and uh, and and catch that ball. But man, defense sort of bailing uh, Tiant out. Really, the first time that we've seen Tiant on the ropes at all in this game. Um, and you know the Reds kind of making the little mistake there uh, that that the Red Sox are able to take advantage of. You know and. Uh, you know, Foster doesn't get get caught stealing. Who he probably ste- he probably scores on that double down the right field line, and uh, you know would be much different. And then, of course, if Yaz doesn't make that incredible play and left, you know you would have more runners on. So really, uh, you know they were able to get bailed out there. And then Tiant, you know himself, he's coming up to the plate now. He takes advantage. He gets a base hit. Louis Tiant with a base hit to left, and then. Oh, things start just going wrong for the Reds. You've got a bunt and gullet, you know, knowing that Tiant is a big, heavy guy, tries to get him out at second base, but Tiant is wily. He gets he gets the second. And so we've now got first and second, nobody out. Denny Doyle gets a hit to left, pokes one over to left field, and now it's bases loaded. Bases loaded with Yaz at the plate. And man, wheels are turning for the Reds. And Yaz, uh, again, he, he's great Red Sox, but he's 36 now. You know, was still an above-average hitter for at this point in his career, but not by his standards. I mean, we're talking about a guy who was MVP, Triple Crown winner. Uh, he was now, you know, mid-teens home runs, hit hit about 270, would get on base, but. He hit great, hit 455 in the championship series, and he was looking to do damage and come through for his team once again. A double play at short and second base, because they don't want a big inning right here. They come in, the ball gets by, the Red Sox may have something big going. Play him more straight away to the outfield. And it's a line drive, right field, coming on Griffey. It's a hit. Tion coming in. Here comes the throw, oh. cut off by Perez. Oh, Johnny wanted it to go through. He missed the plate. 
He, I, I didn't see him touch the plate. He missed the plate and went back and touched it. Concepcion was yelling the, the plate. Concepcion yelling to Perez, throw the ball, throw the ball, but Tion yes, went sir. back and touched home. We get and, a rerun. You'll see him miss the plate when he crosses it. And the Red Sox have broken the scoreless tie. Let's look at it again. Here's Louis. Zimmer has him back tagged up on a short fly ball. Now, Louis does not work well, obviously. He hasn't seen third base home plate very often. Bench is yelling to Perez, let the ball come. We got a chance. Now, Louis. Hey, wait a second. Concepcion, anyway, doesn't think I jacked it. Do I have to touch home? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell. Did he nick the corner of it first time? So uh, Yastrzemski drives in the first run of the game, and Sparky Anderson has gone to the mound, and uh, we will see a new pitcher, Clay Carroll, coming in for Don Gullett. And Yastrzemski continues to do it at the age of 36, suddenly catching fire when they're dangling that money out there in the playoffs. He's made a spectacular play today. He's just come up with the first RBI. And now you have to wonder what's going to be with Teon in the eighth. He's scrambled and run and shoved and all over these baselines. Will it uh, wear him out? We have a break in the action here. With a score now, the Red Sox won and the Reds nothing. Look at Yaz coming through once again for the Red Sox. I mean, just another beloved fi figure for in Boston, comfortable at Fenway Park in huge moments. I mean, hey, he hit great in the uh, 1967 World Series, hit four, almost hit 400, three home runs. Eh, they just ran into the buzzsaw that's Bob Gibson and no one else on the team was able to help out the other um and we're going to see the other guy from that series Rico Petroselli come up uh come up clutch here in in just a moment but that was going to do it for Don Gullett you know when you look at it obviously had thrown six scoreless innings but the Red Sox were nearly there every single inning with a chance to score and they finally break through and it's almost as if the floodgates open now um they bring in uh bring in Clay Carroll but he doesn't get the job done. He ends up walking Carlton Fisk with the bases loaded. Uh, and they, they end up, uh, you know, removing him, bringing in Will McGeany. Does his job gets, uh, gets Freddie Lynn to, to strike out swinging. Then Rico Petroselli would come up clutch time and again for the Red Sox had really had frankly the worst year of his career uh, to this point. Uh, but, you know, they relied on him for his defense and to come through in the clutch. And here he is with a huge moment for the Red Sox. Doyle is at third. Yastrzemski at second. Fisk at first. Two runs in here in the seventh inning. Almost got away from bench. Petroselli has been a clutch hitter, mostly breaking ball in the last couple of years, but he's been hitting fastballs in the last month. Hit a big home run against uh, Raleigh Fingers to give uh, the Red Sox an edge. Here's a base hit to left field. Doyle scores. They're going to send Yastrzemski. Here's the throw to the plate. It's cut off. Two more runs score. It's 4 to nothing, Red Sox. And not a very strong throw by George Foster. It's very shallow out in left field. The scouting reports that... Frank Malzone and Eddie Casco put together, warned about the arm of Cesar Geronimo in center. They said, Foster, you might be able to run a little bit. He could be inaccurate. That was not a strong throw. Well, it's ironical that the only two members of the 67 championship team, Yastrzemski and Petroselli, have turned into stars again in the playoffs and the World Series. No playoffs back then. 
they found their 67 days again. We talked about in the Mets and Orioles series how things can get out of hand real quick. You got to you got to try to stop the gap and and stop the bleeding. And well, the Reds just weren't able to do it here. We're, we're going to see floodgates are fully open. A game that was competitive turns into a rout just like that. And we're going to see that continue with Rick Burleson now up at the plate. Comes to the big game. Somehow they know they've been there before and they're calm. Here's Burleson. Takes outside for a ball. Petroselli with two hits. He's been on base three times. He's on at first. Carlton Fist, the runner at second. Four runs here for the Red Sox in the seventh inning. They lead it four to nothing. Burleson has two hits and a walk. He takes ball two. This is just the way the Red Sox played against Oakland. Exactly, Kirk. They play fundamental, sound baseball, good pitching, underrated pitching, fine, fine defensive play, and then when they had the opportunity, took advantage. It's 3-0 to Rick. Don Zimmer flashing the signs, and since McEnany has had problems with his control, I would think that Burleson would be taking on 3-0, but you never know. I don't know. With Cooper coming up, a left-handed hitter, a left-hander on the mound, I think he might let Burleson take a swat at. He's been a good clutch hitter for you all year. Base hit left field. Fist coming around. Here's the throw to the plate. And scoring is Fist going to second. Safe there is Burleson. And there is something you rarely see Cincinnati do. Rose was in the cutoff position. No chance for a play at the plate. They let the ball go through, and that enabled Burleson to keep going to second. Like the championship series, they are very aggressive. As we see Concepcion diving for the ball, they are running on George Foster. It is shallow and left. Took a lot of time. That's what the scouting report said. He has a strong throwing arm, accurate, but he takes a lot of time to get rid of the ball. Right here, they mess up a cutoff play. Burleson very alertly going to second. Tony, you can't miss the cutoff, man. The Oakland A's did it a couple of times. The Red Sox have only missed maybe once or twice all year. And this is why it hurts. And Burleson taking advantage of it. Second and third, the infield is in. Cooper hits a long drive, right field. Going back as Griffey on the warning track. Makes the catch. Both runners will tag. Petroselli scores. Burleson to third. It's a six to nothing game. Boy, any other day, that's up in the bleachers. That ball hit against the wind. And look at the Red Sox bench. <laughs> if it weren't for the rain and the damp weather, probably would have been an 8 nothing ball game in the Red Sox favor. An eight-run inning. Cecil Cooper absolutely demolishes the ball to right. But as I mentioned, it's kind of a place where, especially given the weather, the fly balls go to die. But how about that? Just in an instant, seems like it's a 6 nothing. What was a nothing nothing ball game is 6 nothing, And with the way Louis Tion was pitching, ball game's over. Ball game's over. Um and you see a few mistakes that it's sort of the uh, some youth there from George Foster firing the ball home. And, you know, while they're saying, oh, he missed the cutoff man. Oh, no, he threw it where it could hit the cutoff man. They just, I think they were just looking to see, hey, can we get a guy out at home plate? Um, but guys were able to move up. The Red Sox, you know, as I mentioned, they were looking to take advantage. Kind of, you know, bit them earlier. But that didn't stop them from being aggressive. That's that's how they were gonna play. Of hey, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna send the man. We're gonna we're gonna come at you. And man, they they came out swinging in game one, and they were able to land. You know, after a few misses, 
they definitely had some missed punches, but they were able to land them there and and they were really able to uh really able to come through with the with the knockout punch there in the seventh. Um just a tremendous ball game from them. And really uh, and again it's one of the things in baseball like like we saw in the 1969 series, you don't want to overreact after game one. You know, for the Reds, you know, despite being the 108-win team, all they're really looking to do is, hey, make sure we win one out of two ball games here. You know, we, we got a chance game two. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm going to play for you the next couple innings, but, you know, like I said, Louis Tiant, you give him a 6 nothing lead, he's not losing that. Not a chance, especially with the way he'd been dominating and befuddling uh, the Reds hitters all day. Um, just a just a tremendous outing from him. Um, and you know what a what a what a sensational thing you're going to hear mentioned extends his scoreless inning streak to 35 innings. 35 innings of scoreless ball. Um, man, kind of a tough tough day for Don Gullett looking at you know giving up uh, four runs. Uh, is only go, able to go six plus, but uh, you know he really battled out there. It's just it fell apart, fell apart, and the offense wasn't able to do anything for him. Um, but and then how about that? How about that? Carl Yastrzemski coming through with a defensive gem and taking that momentum in to come through with a with a great hit. Uh, <laughs> funny enough, Tiot missed home plate, but they you know didn't get the ball in it really looked like the the reds were sort of in fits uh kind of falling apart there um and then rico rico coming through and burleson and man it's just like i said tight ball games can can uh, become routes in an instant um and you know and you know the red sox very aware of that tiant very aware of that buckles down gets through the eighth no problem gets to the ninth gets the first two hitters and the crowd is ready to celebrate the World Series win. A game one win, not a whole win. But, you know, ready to celebrate a game one win at Fenway Park. Two out, here's Concepcion. Takes a fastball, strike one. They want to they strike out there. The hometown fans want to see him end it with a flourish. Robbed of a hit last time off by Carl Yastrzemski. Two down. That's the hesitation job. Tiot went into this ninth inning with no earned runs allowed in his last 35 innings at Fenway Park. One ball, one strike to Concepcion, two out, top of the ninth, six to nothing to score. And the Reds are down to their last strike. One ball, two strikes. Crowd on its feet here at Fenway on an overcast raw day. And Petroselli gloves it. Oh, in time. And the Red Sox have drawn first blood in the 1975 World Series. Louis Tion, with the help of a six-run seventh, spins a five-hit shutout to give the Sox the victory. Dick, they played a flawless game. They just can't make a mistake in the field. That last play by Petroselli was a sparkler. Yastrzemski, Freddie Lynn. They're taking the extra base. They're doing everything that the book says you're supposed to do to play baseball. And these Red Sox players, Kurt, like to be the underdogs. They like to know that somebody feels that the other club will win. 
They handled the Baltimore pressure, as you mentioned, beat Oakland in three straight games, the three-time defending champs, and there you see Louis Tion getting congratulations and a whale of a game for him. Well, I figured him the key of this series. If he lost here today, I think the Reds would have been heavily favored. Just an outstanding performance from El Tiante. Five-hit shutout in his first World Series game. How about that? I mean, how about that? I mean, with all of the ups and downs that he did, that he had in his career, all the highs, all the lows, and just what an incredible moment for the Cuban legend. Um, I, he's someone who I feel should be in the Hall of Fame, and we're going to see him you know, go out and uh, give it his all in, in some other performances uh, in this World Series. And, I mean, you know, taking advantage of the elements, taking advantage of the crowd, really, other than that seventh inning, didn't face much trouble in this game. Uh, the Red Sox were knocking at the door pretty much the entire game, have the floodgates open there in the, se- in the seventh. Um, so they're feeling great. They're feeling great about things. You know, they were able to knock off the defending World Series champs and they were looking to knock off the best, you know, kind of the team of the 70s, the big red machine, the team of the National League. Oh, man, I'm really, uh, really excited to cover the rest of this series. I mean, just what a what a great game one. Um, really able to see. I mean, what a legend. I mean, I love talking about ballplayers like Louis Tion. And, of course, legends. You know, sometimes it's, you know, it's the legends – like uh, like Yaz coming through, but you see big plays from Denny Doyle. Nice clutch hit from Rico Petroselli, and yeah, we're looking looking up to Game Two. Game Two is another. It's gonna we're gonna see these string of one run ball games, great games throughout the rest of this series. Um, this is really the only uh, only game of the series that's that's truly one sided. But again, it was a nothing nothing ball game. For six and a half innings. Um, man, really excited to get into game two. We got Bill Spaceman Lee and Jack Billingham. Another righty lefty matchup, but just flipping lefty for the Red Sox, righty for the for the Reds. At Fenway Park. Really hope you tune in for game two. Catch you next time on Fall Classic Rewind.